Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I do not propose to add anything to what has already been written concerning the loss of the Lady Vane. As everyone knows, she collided with a derelict when ten days out from Kaiao. The longboat with seven of the crew was picked up eighteen days after by Her Majesty's gunboat Myrtle, and the story of their terrible privations has become quite as well known as the far more horrible Medusa case. But I have to add to the published story of the Lady Vane another, possibly as horrible and far stranger. It has hitherto been supposed that the four men who were in the dinghy perished, but this is incorrect. I have the best of evidence for this assertion. I was one of the four men. That was from Chapter 1 of The Island of Dr. Moreau by author H.G. Wells, and that author is one of the four men bringing this show to you today. I am the second man, Chad Pfeiffer. And I am the third, Christopher Lackey. Welcome to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. You can find us at strangestudies.com or on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> this is our free show. We'll be releasing three more installments over the month covering this novel, and we're going to talk about the movies, too. So please check us out on Patreon and subscribe to get everything. When you do that, you can also listen to past coverage of other classic novels such as Dracula, Frankenstein. We've got werewolves in all their forms, and oh, of yeah. course, our complete series on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Speaking of Lovecraft, the fourth member of our expedition today is... Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. You know what they say. When you find an island where monsters are teeming, you want to hear about it from Andrew Lehman. <laughs> He'll be our reader throughout these episodes, and you can hear more of him on all of the glorious productions of Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Oh, yeah. Presented by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. We'll link out to their site in the show notes. You can get so much great stuff there. Books. Props, clothing, movies, whatever you want. <laughs> Speaking of everything being in one place, I mentioned Dracula and Frankenstein and werewolves, and mm -hmm. this book somehow manages to have all of those monsters going on at once. The book itself is a weird hybrid of other books. When did this come out? Well, it was first published in 1896. Wells wrote The Time Machine the year before this, and he will write The Invisible Man the year after this book. This is one of the classics of the great four H.G. Wells novels. We covered the first two on our show. The other classic novel, War of the Worlds, is uh, something we plan to cover soon, or eventually, I should say. Yeah. We just covered one. I, don't, I should say soon. But we want to get to it. We want to get to it, yeah. You know, the story goes that when Orson Welles did the radio production of War of the Worlds, it caused a panic. Mm -hmm. And aliens used that panic as a distraction to infiltrate the highest levels of government. What? I'm just trying to get another panic going. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, whoa, that's all true. <laughs> the best reaction. Whoa, that's so true what you just said. <laughs> I say this book is like Dracula, which came out actually one year after it. Oh. It doesn't resemble that story too much, mm -hmm. except that Moreau is somewhat Dracula-esque, I'd say. There was one similar scene. Remember in Dracula when Harker realizes he's a prisoner of the castle. Mm -hmm. Dracula opens the door and says, well, you can leave if you want. Of course, we're surrounded by hungry wolves. Right. Moreau has the exact scene in here later. You can leave the island if you like, but of course the waters are teeming with hungry sharks. It's up to you. <laughs> so the story is a little like Jaws as well. Yeah, yeah, there is a, a slight hint of Jaws in there. One might say a strong suggestion of deep blue sea. Oh, with yeah. With the hyper-intelligent sharks. Uh-huh. And that Frankenstein comparison, that's probably the most obvious. He's creating monsters and then just casting them off. Yeah. And letting them figure out the world. Of course, they're all were-beasts. 
So that's the werewolf angle. Although there are, are there any actual werewolves in the book? Dog boys, for sure. <laughs> there are definitely dog boys. Uh, we've talked about Herbert George Wells before on the old show, so we don't have much biography here. A short version. He was an English writer. He wrote more than 50 novels, dozens of short stories in all sorts of genres. His nonfiction works were on social commentary, politics, history, popular science. Wells is best remembered for his science fiction novels and has been called the father of science fiction. You know, I've been called some things too. So in that way, I'm like H.G. Wells. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This book is a straight up horror story. I think that the other two books we covered were more science fiction with strong horror elements, but this one is really rough and dark. It makes me feel really icky. Yeah. I think that's the reaction for most people. It did the first time I read it as well. I remember reading it when I was pretty young, probably middle school. Mm. In fact, I reread it in the exact same dog-eared old paperback that I had from them. It's a hand-me-down from my uncle. It was published in 1966, so it has this great old paperback smell. But it's a story that is launched by scientific concepts, whereas I might wonder what it's like to travel through time or turn invisible. However, I really haven't spent a lot of time wondering, you know, what if I was able to make a guy out of a goat? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it, it, it's not really a wish fulfillment story. No. I don't relate to this antagonist at all. And I don't no. think, you know, we're meant to. He's the ultimate mad scientist, more so than Dr. Frankenstein, I think, because his scientific practices are unfeeling. They're unethical. They create chaos and they're really not done for any specific benefit other than his own curiosity. Yeah. Uh-huh. There might be benefits that come from the research, but that's not why he's after it. It's mm. so it's a horror story about technology run amok. But in showing the effects the Society of Cast-Off Animals, Wells also calls the tenets of civilization into question in the book, including religion, traditional morality. Yeah. I mean, like the time machine, there's this extra level of social criticism and satire happening. The beast people having a religion in which they cannot act like beasts seems like something right out of Candide. Yeah. In the introduction of the copy I read, it talks about how Wells really ended up much more invested in social issues, and he didn't see these early, quote, scientific romances, as they were called, Mm -hmm. as his best work. Although, as you said, these are the four classic novels. This is how we remember him today. Oh, yeah. I think that later in life, Wells didn't think anything of inserting a 20 to 30 page essay into the middle of a novel expounding on how to solve the ills of society. It became very didactic. And I think these books touch on those themes as well. But there's this giant spoonful of like pulpy story to just make it all go down really well. And Mm -hmm. there's also an interpretive quality to it that spurs discussion about these topics rather than him just kind of telling you how it is. I I think that's the reason that they succeed today. Wells was an incredibly smart guy. He had a huge range of knowledge on current topics, Uh, lower middle class origins, actually. When he was young, he was trying to figure out if he should be a teacher. He was working as a journalist. Beginning of his career, I think the story goes that an editor or a colleague said, why don't you just write some funny stories about science? You'd be good at that. And he found a market for doing that. So I think the one thing that also makes these early books work so well is there's no literary pretensions. He barely saw himself as a writer. He's just trying to keep the reader hooked and move things along through a high concept with short bursts of action or conflict. These are made to entertain and sort of titillate you with some science fact. And that's why they get adapted over and over. They're already cinematic. Not much internal monologue, no description-laden text, very straightforward. He's like a pulp savant. There's so many things to discuss. It's tough not to front-load it all now. Let's be like Wells and just jump right into the action. Although what jumping into the action means varies from copy to copy of this book. In the Gutenberg copy we are linking out to, there's a short introduction to the book, but that's Mm -hmm. not in every copy. The copy I have doesn't have it. It just starts from chapter one, but it is an awesome wraparound. I believe it's in most copies. So what does this introduction tell us? Well, it's a piece of found fiction written by Charles 
Prendick, who is the nephew of the novel's protagonist. And he has found his uncle's writings about these horrible and unbelievable events. He explains in this introduction that his uncle, Edward Prendick, survived the shipwreck of the Lady Vane. Following an unexpected rescue, Edward claimed he had been stranded on a strange island in the middle of the Pacific for nearly a year. Charles says that he can verify some of the things his uncle says, but not most of the good stuff that's in the manuscript. His uncle was on the Lady Vane in 1887. It did crash into a derelict ship. Edward Prendick was picked up almost a year later on a rowboat missing from a different ship. The island that his uncle described was found, but none of the strange things he described were there, except for some weird rats and moths. Right. But that doesn't necessarily negate his story because they didn't search right away. The visit that was made was in 1891. Mm -hmm. He was picked up, I think it says 1888. So It's a few years later, and we'll have to revisit that at the end, what we think might have happened in that time. Mm -hmm. But there was indeed a captain, John Davies, who was bringing a puma to this island, as Edward says later in the tale, uh, a record of that ship setting out from Africa. But that captain, we're going to meet that captain, but his ship has long since disappeared. Nobody knows where he is, and they can't verify any of this. Mm -hmm. So there's no backup at all to the tale. And in fact, it seems that Edward realized that telling it to people wasn't a good idea. (laughs) The introduction says he gave such a strange account of himself that he was supposed demented. Subsequently, he alleged that his mind was a blank from the moment of his escape from the Lady Vane. His case was discussed among psychologists at the time as a curious instance of the lapse of memory consequent upon physical and mental stress. Mm -hmm. So he figured out, (laughs) oh, if I tell the truth, they're going to put me away. So, you know, or he's just crazy and this is all actual demented ravings, you know, unreliable narrator stuff. Well, Charles got these papers after his uncle's death and decided to publish them. And we could see a strong influence on the Call of Cthulhu here. Yeah. You know, nephew gets his uncle's notes, etc. However, Charles doesn't really continue the investigation. From here on out, it's Edward Prendick telling his tale. Which is why I think this introduction may sometimes get cut because it's not revisited. But the fact that this is a found document does lend that kind of cool verisimilitude to it. So let's just get right into the island of Dr. Moreau with chapter one in the dinghy of the Lady Vane. The story starts out with Prendick telling us about his boat. Look, I'm going to his name's Prendick. His name's Prendick and it's impossible to say. (laughs) I don't know why. So I'm going to say right now in this show and throughout this coverage, if you say Pendrick, if you say P. Dickey, (laughs) whatever you want to do, man. Because I know I'm going to get it wrong because it just does not roll off the tongue. We're saying it now. I've noticed in all of the adaptations, they do not name him Prendick. No. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's terrible. It's a terrible name. So he's telling us about this boat collision of the Lady Vane and that it went down fast. He was on a dinghy with two other dudes. They only had a few biscuits and some water, but that quickly ran out. Prendick was a passenger, as was one of the other men on this dinghy, Helmar. And then there's a third guy who was actually crew of the ship. He was short and sturdy. And that's all we know about him. We don't get a name. Prendick settles right away that the account about the four men perishing was also wrong and that there weren't four men on the dinghy. One of the guys trying to get on board their dinghy got caught in some rope on the wreck and died before he even got to them. So it was really just the three of them set adrift. As we heard at the top of the show, nobody knew they had escaped. Many more people know about the seven survivors who were picked up 18 days later. It says the story of their terrible privations has become quite as well known as the far more horrible Medusa case. Mm-hmm. I have to say the section of the book that we're covering, unputdownable. Like I was oh, yeah. cruising through it. I didn't stop for any silly research. But later in the day, I decided to look up the far more horrible Medusa case. He mentions it in such an offhand way that I imagine it was something the reader in 1896 would be familiar with. 
Mm-hmm. And they probably were. There's a really famous painting of this event, The Raft of the Medusa by Theodore Jericho. It's in the Louvre. I think it's the second most popular attraction in the Louvre after the Mona Lisa. Mm. And it's a beautiful example of French romanticism. I mean, just a gigantic painting. We will link out to the image in the show notes. It was painted about 1819. But the event that inspired this painting happened just a few years prior to its execution in 1816. It was a big politically charged event. I'll give you the story in a nutshell. But I did a ton of reading about both the event and the painting once I got started. It's all very interesting. So I recommend getting into more details. But this definitely influenced the book, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's why it was mentioned in the first paragraph. But essentially, Napoleon had just been deposed. We've got the Bourbon Restoration in which the nobles return to power and they're handing out positions to their cronies. And doing that leads to this shipwreck, which is why it also becomes a really charged political topic of the time. The Medusa was a frigate that had been in the Napoleonic Wars. And in 1816, the ship departs from Rochefort, bound for the Senegalese port of St. Louis. And it's captained by a guy who hasn't sailed in in 20 years. It's probably St. Louis, by the way. But he was a royalist, (laughs) this guy, and they gave him the position, the captain, as a political favor, even though, as we'll see, he's incompetent. The frigate's mission was to accept the British return of Senegal under the terms of France's acceptance of the Peace of Paris. The appointed French governor of Senegal and his wife and daughter were among the passengers. So Mm. it's been decommissioned. They're military folks, but also civilians. Sure. I couldn't decide which summary to pull, but I'll do the Wikipedia one because it's brief. Due to poor navigation, the Medusa drifted 160 kilometers. That's 100 miles off course. On the 2nd of July, it ran aground on a sandbank off the West African coast near today's Mauritania. So it wrecked out a little like the Lady Vane in this story. Hmm. Efforts to free the ship failed. So on the 5th of July, the frightened passengers and crew started an attempt to travel the 60 miles to the African coast and the frigate's six boats. Although the Medusa was carrying 400 people, including 160 crew, there was space for only about 250 in the boats. The remainder of the ship's complement and half of a contingent of marine infantrymen, at least 146 men and one woman, were piled into a hastily built raft that partially submerged once it was loaded. So, by the way, the raft was built to drag supplies. This is a second failure by the captain. First wrecks the ship, but they were going to make the trip in stages and take everybody in the safe boats. Uh But he freaked out because of some bad weather and thought, oh, no, the ship's going to sink. Let's do this right now. Put everybody on the raft that wasn't meant for people. So all 147 people go on there. 17 crew members opted to stay aboard the grounded Medusa. The captain and crew aboard the other boats intended to tow the raft, but after only a few miles, the raft was cut loose in open water because they could see it was going to sink, and they were afraid those people were going to climb up and overtake their boats. So they created this issue and then cut them loose to die. Oh, God. And the 17 people who were just left on board the Medusa, by the way, survived because it didn't sink. Yeah. So for sustenance, the crew on the raft had only a bag of ship's biscuits consumed on the first day. They had two casks of water that were lost overboard during fighting to get to the mm-hmm. center of this raft. And they yeah. had six casks of wine. So half of the raft gets drunk on the first night. No water, all booze. According to critic Jonathan Miles, the raft carried the survivors to the frontiers of human experience. Crazed, parched and starved, they slaughtered mutineers, ate their dead companions and killed the weakest. After 13 days, the raft was rescued by the Argus, another ship, by chance. No particular search effort was made by the French for the raft. By this time, only 15 men were still alive. The others had been killed or thrown overboard by their comrades, died of starvation, or had thrown themselves into the sea in despair. The incident became a huge public embarrassment for the French monarchy, (laughs) as you can imagine. 
Reading about how the people on the raft were all constantly fighting to get to the center, which was the only stable part, just freaked me out. I mean, it was its own horror story. It's also terrible. And also in reading this, I discovered the concept of what's called custom of the sea. Uh, Mm -hmm. Custom of the sea is a custom that is said to be practiced by the officers and crew of ships and boats in the open sea as distinguished from maritime law. So among these customs was the practice of cannibalism among shipwrecked survivors by the drawing of lots to decide who would be killed and eaten so that the others might survive. Um, And that freaked me out because I just actually bought a can of custom of the sea. (laughs) I thought it was off-brand chicken of the sea, you know, tuna. I'm not so sure now, but it was delicious. Oh, no. Anyway, sorry for that side quest on the Medusa. That's crazy stuff. It was a really involving bit of story and was obviously on Wells' mind for the chapter, the event itself, but maybe also that concept of people dehumanizing, Mm -hmm. you know, in that conflict, becoming cruel, beast-like, you know, and some custom of the sea is coming uh, right up in this chapter. So let's keep going. So these three survivors on the small dinghy, after the food runs out, Helmar says we should consider eating somebody. And at first... (laughs) Prendick says, I would rather die with the sharks than do that, either be eaten or eat somebody else. And Helmar Mm. and the sailor are kind of whispering to each other about stuff. Prendick is armed. He's got a knife. So if they're going to try and get him, he's going to stab some dudes. But even he can't hold out because of the starvation, the hunger, the exposure. You know, there's nothing to drink. There's nothing to eat. So they draw lots. And the sailor is the one who gets the short stick. He's chosen for eating. However, He's the biggest guy, and he ain't having it. So Helmar (laughs) and he fight, and they both go overboard and sink like stones, it says. I remember laughing at that and wondered why I laughed. The laugh caught me suddenly like a thing from without. I mean, the idea of custom of the sea is that you won't get busted when you return to land because you were just doing what you had to do. But who's going to be the one that goes, well, I drew the short stick. That's cool. (laughs) No, man, you're going to fight. But remember, Prendrick is an unreliable narrator. It is possible yep. he ate those guys. I think he might have right. ate those guys on the first day. Yeah. The days go by and Prendick is in and out of consciousness. The next thing he remembers is something being poured into his mouth. And that gets us into <laughs> chapter two, the man who was going nowhere. Prendick finds himself aboard a ship. There's a blonde guy with a mustache tending to him. He explains that Prendick was found at sea and he's now on a boat called the Ipikachuana. Uh, he was almost dead. And this guy, Montgomery, nursed him back to health. And Montgomery's mustache is, of course, foreshadowing. <laughs> it is? <laughs> I would say. Okay. That's a literary term. Yeah, okay, okay. So Prendick introduces himself and says that he's a natural historian. And Montgomery says that he is a biologist as well. He says that he hasn't been back to London in over 10 years, and he's got lots of questions about it. Left it all, he said, 10 years ago. How jolly it all used to be. But I made a young ass of myself, played myself out before I was 21. Prindick overhears dogs barking and people yelling at each other, but Montgomery tells him to not worry and just rest up. He also explains that he lives on an island and that's where they're going, moving us into Chapter 3, The Strange Face. When Prindick is feeling well enough to leave, he runs into a short, strange guy obstructing their way out of the cabin. In some indefinable way, the black face thus flashed upon me shocked me profoundly. It was a singularly deformed one. The facial part projected, forming something dimly suggestive of a muzzle, and the huge half-open mouth showed as big white teeth as I had ever seen in a human mouth. His eyes were bloodshot at the edges, with scarcely a rim of white round the hazel pupils. There was a curious glow of excitement in his face. 
Montgomery yells at this guy and tells him to get to the front of the ship, but the poor guy says they won't have him up at the front of the ship, the rest of the crew. Prendick notes that his voice is strange. Montgomery goes to sort this out and Prendick follows him. He sees on deck that there are all these caged animals, staghounds, a puma, a llama, lots of rabbits. Montgomery is dodgy about what all these animals are for. He acts like he doesn't know. Prendick asks, is the captain going to sell these somewhere or something? And Montgomery says, well, it looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> Which is a really smart evasion. It's not a lie. Just a question. It's not a lie. Now we meet the captain, who is this red-headed, bearded, drunk guy. Montgomery goes up to him and says that the treatment of this weird-looking man is not cool. The guy with the strange face, with the muzzle, the, you know, the captain and crew have been abusing him because of his high-pitched voice. They just said he had a strange voice. I assume it was like this. <laughs> But he works for Montgomery, and Montgomery's mad about it. You guys yeah. are being mean to my assistant. So drunk captain tells him to F off. It's his ship. He's in charge, and he can kill him if he wants to. He's the boss. The captain goes on to say, I wish I'd never set eyes on your infernal island. What the <laughs> devil? What beast for on an island like that? Then that man of yours understood he was a man. He's a lunatic, and he's had no business aft. Do you think the whole damn ship belongs to you? That's a good drunk captain. Yeah, Montgomery is not intimidated, and he tells him off some more. And it looks like it might get serious. Prendick steps in and cools the heat, and the drunk captain just wanders off. What Prendick did wasn't all that smart. He told the captain to shut up. Yeah. He got cursed out as a result, but took it because he prevented a fight, and he thought that made it worth it. Nevertheless, this is actually the guy he's dependent upon, not Montgomery. Yes. Uh-huh. And I guess that if Prendick has any kind of fatal character flaw, it's this. He can't not get involved in something if he sure. thinks there's an injustice happening. Yeah. In the 70s film adaptation of this book, which we'll talk about at another time, but uh, Prendick has the shipwreck and then just washes up on the island. They don't do this whole in-between stage. And you might wonder why Wells didn't do the same thing. Why is there this rescue at sea and a boat trip before we get to the island? And I think that's why. Yeah. The shipwreck, that just happened to Prendick. Yeah. But getting kicked off this boat... He did that. Yeah. And that's that's what makes the misadventure that's about to happen his fault. Yes. To an extent, right? To an extent, yeah, sure. And that gets us into chapter four at the schooner's rail. That night, Prendick and Montgomery have a little heart-to-heart. -heart. He thanks Montgomery for saving his life. Thank no one. You had the need and I had the knowledge. I injected you and fed you as much as I might have collected a specimen. I was bored and wanted something to do. If I'd been jaded that day or hadn't liked your face, well, it's a curious question where you would have been now. It's a chance, I tell you, as is everything in man's life. Only the asses won't see it. Why am I here now, an outcast from civilization, instead of being a happy man enjoying all the pleasures of London, simply because 11 years ago I lost my head for 10 minutes on a foggy night? So he did something that got him kicked out of London, but we don't get into that at all, mm -mm. and then they, he retires for the night. It's never described, and Montgomery seems to have given himself over to drinking, so likely he got drunk as a youth, and he did mm -hmm. something stupid and uh, criminal yeah. that made him have to leave, and that was it. But his character is that of somebody who feels they've already forfeited their life a bit already. Sure. Later on, he says something like, the steed's been stolen, so why bother locking the stable? Which I think, that's a really dangerous character. Somebody oh, sure. who's, who's like, eh, I've already screwed up enough that I'm not going to really care about what I do with my life now. So that gets us into chapter five, the man who had nowhere to go. So the next day, Pendrick is awakened by a huge commotion. They arrived near an island. The captain is saying, drop the whole load of animals off of the ship. When the captain sees Prendick, he just calls him Mr. Shut Up. Mm -hmm. Really juvenile about this. And the captain goes to kick Prendick off the ship as well. They still have his dinghy that they found him on. So he goes, yep, put him on the dinghy because he's not, I don't want him on my ship. Yeah, he thought that they'd drop Montgomery and then he'd go on with these guys. But they're like, no, you got to get off. And so naturally Prendick looks to Montgomery. Can you help me? 
Yeah, but Montgomery says, no, I can't take you with me. And Prendick begs and he pleads and Montgomery's, he seems sad about it, but he just kind of throws up his hands. And Drunk Captain, he delights in this cruelty. When Montgomery said he saved him because he was bored, he he meant it. Yeah. You know, this was the one time where betting on the drunk captain was actually the best option. <laughs> yes. And he didn't yeah. do it. So the drunk captain and his crew throw Prendick in this dinghy. They just set him off to drift. And he cries as he's left to float aimlessly. Ah, uh, well, I almost cried reading this section. Can you imagine getting marooned at sea, getting rescued, uh-huh. and then getting marooned again? Because he can't uh, pilot this thing toward the island. He's just at the mercy of the current, and he's in in no shape to be going for a swim. No. So he's just going to watch himself drift away from safety. And that gets us into Chapter 6, The Evil-Looking Boatman. When the islanders see that he's actually really being set off to sea, they come back for him. And they drag him because their boat is so full of stuff. Frendick can see that there's a big white-haired guy and three weird-looking dark-skinned dudes as well. They seem to me then to be brown men but their limbs were oddly swathed in some thin, dirty white stuff down even to the fingers and feet. I have never seen men so wrapped up before, and women so only in the East. They wore turbans, too, and thereunder peered out their elfin faces at me, faces with protruding lower jaws and bright eyes. They had lank black hair, almost like horse hair, and seemed, as they sat, to exceed in stature any race of men I have seen. So the island itself is low and thick with vegetation. Montgomery barks a command, and the guys on the boat jump up and start unloading stuff. The white-haired guy comes up and finally speaks to Prendick. He says that he's uninvited, but he's still a guest, and they'll let him have some food and a place to stay. But then reminds him that he's uninvited a few more times. It's so terrible. (laughs) It is. We don't want you here. Just letting you know. (laughs) Montgomery tells this guy that Prendick is a man of science. And Prendick explains that he graduated from the Royal College of Science and that he's done some research under Huxley. And this interests the white-haired guy who says, well, we're a biological station. And he says another ship should be by uh, about a year. (laughs) Oh, a year. Thomas Henry Huxley was an English scientist and proponent of evolution. That's a real person he's referencing. Uh Uh, Huxley coined the term agnosticism, and he was the finest comparative anatomist of the 19th century, as well as a public champion of science education. So that's an impressive reference. Sure. If this narrator is to be trusted, he could just be making it up. Huxley died a year before this book came out. But if that weren't the case, I might guess that Prendrick probably ate him. (laughs) Probably ate him on the first day of class. Makes sense. Yeah. The white-haired guy has to run off in Montgomery, comes to speak with Prendick. Prendick thanks Montgomery. He knows he was the one that convinced the white-haired guy to rescue him. And Montgomery says, Prendick, watch yourself around. Uh, and then he just changes his mind, doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Asking Prendick to help him, you know, get these rabbits out. They're just releasing the rabbits out into the island. Yeah, I thought that they were for research when they were first mentioned. But no, he dumps them on the ground and lets them go. He says, increase and multiply, my friends. Replenish the island. Hitherto, we've had a certain lack of meat here. I wonder if Montgomery had to sign off to do that, given some things we learn later. Mm-hmm. Maybe having meat running around on the island isn't a great idea. Is this some kind of little act of rebellion? I was, yeah. This was curious to me. The white-haired man comes back with some biscuits and brandy. Prendick eats the biscuits, but he doesn't drink the brandy. He's an abstainer. Montgomery later expresses some feelings of satisfaction in having given brandy to this teetotaler while he was unconscious. <laughs> Yeah, it really made me dislike him. He's, oh, he's yeah. not a very likable character. Oh, no. no he's not respect. a good guy. He's no. not a good guy. Uh, that gets us into Chapter 7, The Locked Door. Prendick overhears Montgomery and this white-haired guy talking about what to do with him. They can't send him over there. 
whatever that meant. They don't have time to build him his own place and they can't bring him into their confidence yet. Finally, the white-haired guy approaches Pendrick and says, I'm sorry to make a mystery, Mr. Prendick, but you'll remember you're uninvited. Our little establishment here contains a secret or so. Is a kind of Bluebeard's chamber, in fact. Nothing very dreadful, really, to a sane man. But just now, as we don't know you, and then Prendick says, decidedly, I should be a fool to take offense at anyone of confidence. And this pleases both these guys now. And they show where he's going to stay. It's a small room with an inner locked door that is never to be opened. Basically a hut-type structure that can open to the outside uh, of the island, but blocks him from whatever Gilligan's Island-looking science facility that this is. It was kind <laughs> of hard to imagine. By the way, Bluebeard's Chamber is a is a reference to the Bluebeard legend in which he has all his dead wives in a chamber in the house, and his new wife finds them. Oh, right. uh, so when he says it's kind of a Bluebeard's Chamber, that, that doesn't inspire what? confidence in what's going on there. By the way, there's a great story about Bluebeard's Chamber by Angela Carter called The Bloody Chamber that people have been pitching lately, and we are oh, going to yeah. cover that soon as well. Yeah, so yeah. I thought, oh, good, it was mentioned here. That sets us up for getting into Angela Carter. There we go. Next month or so. Prendick asks, why can't I go in this door? And they say, well, it's for fear of accidents. We don't want anything bad to happen if you mm. accidentally go in there. And without thinking, Montgomery calls the old man Moreau. This name has a familiar ring to Prendick, but he's not sure why. Prendick stays in the room most of the day, still recovering from his starvation and exposure. The next day, he can hear strange voices talking. And when looking out, he can see one of these guys has pointed ears covered in a very fine fur. This guy with the pointed ears brings Prendick breakfast. And after the strange guy leaves, Prendick remembers the Moreau Hallows. Was it? The Moreau? Ah, I sent my memory back 10 years. The Moreau Horrors. That long forgotten pamphlet came back with startling vividness to my mind. I had been a mere lad then. And Moreau was, I suppose, about 50, a prominent and masterful physiologist, well known in scientific circles for his extraordinary imagination and his brutal directness in discussion. It seems when Moreau was working in England, a journalist pretended to be an assistant to Moreau and got into his laboratory and wrote this pamphlet about all the terrible things he was doing in the name of experimentation. On the day of its publication, a wretched dog, flayed and otherwise mutilated, escaped from Moreau's house. It was not the first time that conscience turned against the methods of research. The doctor was simply howled out of the country. So, Dr. Moreau is a vivisectionist who was uh, so unpopular he had to flee. I felt convinced that this must be the same man. Everything pointed to it. It dawned upon me to what end the puma and the other animals, which had now been brought with other luggage into the enclosure behind the house, were destined, and a curious faint odor, the halitus of something familiar, an odor that had been in the background of my consciousness hitherto, suddenly came forward into the forefront of my thoughts. It was the antiseptic odor of the dissecting room. I heard the puma growling through the wall, and one of the dogs yelped as though it had been struck. Yet surely, and especially to another scientific man, there was nothing so horrible in vivisection as to account for this secrecy. And by some odd leap in my thoughts, the pointed ears and luminous eyes of Montgomery's attendant came back again before me with the sharpest definition. I stared before me out at the green sea, frothing under a freshening breeze, and let these and other strange memories of the last few days chase one another through my mind. What could it all mean? A locked enclosure on a lonely island, a notorious vivisector, and these crippled and distorted men. 
We're just normal men. <laughs> just innocent men. That's all we're going to get into on this episode of the show. Again, to hear our coverage of the entire novel this month, please subscribe on Patreon if you haven't already. Yes. There's a lot more to get into about this book, particularly the vivisection debate in England at the time, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about in the next episode. The real doctor that Moreau was based on, and also how Oscar Wilde plays into inspiring all of this as well. Strangely, yes, it's true. I want to thank Andrew Lehman for reading. Please go over to the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Check out all their great stuff. There's a new monograph that Andrew Lehman has produced. It's in the mail for me. I can't wait to get my hands on it. These are amazing artifacts that look like they're from the period. They're written in that voice. They're so well done. Yeah, we'll link out to the new product in the show notes. you got to see it. The stuff is so cool. It's so cool. And of course, we want to thank our stakers who make these free shows possible. I'm going to start by thanking Crypto Cartographer. Alistair Brooks, thank you. The Twins, thank you so much. Angelina Brown, thank you. Evan, thank you. And lastly, Eric Gordon, thank you so much. You guys are the best. We'll be back with more Moreau. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. On Patreon or strangestudies.com. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Captain!